So I'll be reading um, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So bear with me, it's kind of long. All right. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time, passed to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir to all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers of flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawfulness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your compassions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish you, but you remain, and they will and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed by you are the same. And your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and who was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will? For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. 
and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all the subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the caption of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he was sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he has not given aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Before Josh comes this morning, I was given an assignment this week and uh, it was an assignment given me by Josh. I'll just read you the assignment, and you can commiserate with me about what a terrible assignment it is. He said, quote, I was wondering if you would speak for about 10 minutes about things you have learned the past 40 years of ministry, kind of like a letter to your younger self. I was thinking since it is Youth Sunday, it would be good to encourage those who are young, whether in physical age or spiritual age, to stay steadfast in their faith despite the adversities, knowing it is worth it in the end, end quote. So I thought to myself, if I could go back 40 years, oh, let's be real, 45 years, to when I was young, what would I say to my younger self? And so I just started writing down some things, and uh, in no particular order, some of them are kind of negative and some of them are positive, but I thought to myself, I would really want to, take myself by the shoulders, and I would want to uh, give myself some warnings. I wrote down a few things. One thing I wrote down is it's not all going to be fun. When I was that age, I thought everything about adulthood was going to be fun. I thought uh, it was all going to be positive. I couldn't wait to be an adult. I remember when I couldn't wait to drive, and then I couldn't wait to graduate, and then I couldn't wait to be married, and then I couldn't wait to have my own home, and I thought all this is going to be fun. It's not all going to be fun. There's a lot of negatives to that as well. There's bills to pay and things. And so I would remind myself, you need to think about that a little bit more and be more prepared for it. I wrote down the things that happen to others are going to happen to you. 
we tend to think that, you know, it always happens to the other guy, especially when we're young. I didn't think any of those kinds of things would happen to me, but they do. I wrote down the warnings you've heard all your life are true. Your parents didn't know what they were talking about. And if I could get hold of my younger self, I would definitely remind them of that one. My parents were idiots. Weren't yours when you were that age? They didn't know anything. My mother over and over and over again told me, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. I remember that. And I don't smoke today because I never wanted to smoke, to be honest with you. I don't not smoke today because my mother told me that. I thought she was an idiot. I don't smoke because I never wanted to. But you know, in the years since, in the many years since, I have watched so many people die of cancer that I have come to be reminded that uh, she knew what she was talking about. And so I would warn myself of that. I I wrote down, some people you love and respect are going to hurt you terribly. When I was young, my friends were the most important people in the world. They were all knowing. Everybody else was idiots. But you know what? Sometimes your friends are going to hurt you. People are going to hurt you, some terribly. I also wrote down, you're going to hurt yourself, and probably many times over, because you know what? You're really not the genius you think you are. I was a genius. I was. I learned differently. I wrote down, words never go away. I wish I could take some back. I wrote down, mistakes never go away. Ditto. I wish I could take some back. And I wrote down, you will regret some things. Don't believe those fools who come to the end of their life and say, I have no regrets. Nonsense. The only person who could ever say that was Jesus Christ. You will regret some things. Oh, and speaking of coming to the end of your life, right now you think you got all the world, all the time in the world? You have about 10 seconds. In about 10 seconds, you're going to be old. About 11, you're going to meet the Lord. I was just talking with Debbie before the service today about her sister Janelle. She asked for prayer for Janelle because Janelle's having a hip replacement. Just seconds ago, Janelle was sitting right here on this platform in the junior choir singing. Uh, Just amazing to me. You do not have all the time in the world. And and I could go on with all those kind of warnings, but then I thought, "Let let me write something else down here. How about this one? Jesus is real, and he is the only answer to all of those things, to everything that you will come up with in life. And, of course, I would be preaching to the choir then because I, I was, uh, when I was that age, I, I believed in the Lord. I was saved. But nonetheless, I would reinforce it. After a lifetime of living with Jesus, he is real. He is the only answer. And I wrote down here also, Jesus loves you and he will never leave you. No matter else, no matter who else does. And I wrote down, even though I mentioned regrets a minute ago, there's another side to that coin. You'll never regret anything you do for Jesus, ever, or anything you do with Jesus. So that's just a few things that I would perhaps say to my younger self if I could go back a gazillion years and talk to me younger. And maybe I'd end it by reminding my young self of something Paul told Timothy. He said, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So, young Billy, stay the course. No matter what, stay the course.
I'll see what you're going to do with that, Josh. Why don't you guys give Pastor Bill a hand or something? Really, I just, I wanted that for myself, you know. I still consider myself a child, just a kid. I don't put too much responsibility on myself just yet. And so that was, that was good. That was very good. Praise God. Today I wanted to open up with a story to kind of get us going. This is a, this is a story told by a bagpiper in Scotland. He says, as a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be at a pauper cemetery in the Saskatchewan backcountry. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost. And being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers and the crew left, and they were eating lunch. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid had already been in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played out my heart and soul for this man with no family and friends. I played like I've never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept. I wept. We all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and I started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. I tell you guys this story to put a smile on your face, but also to bring up a valid point. And that is to remind you of why we're really here right now. We know we are here right now because of God's love for us. A love so great that each of us were able to put our feet over the side of our bed this morning, no matter how hard it may have been for some of you. And, and, and to, and we're here to live. But, not just live, but live with a purpose, a purpose given to us by our Creator. Within that God-given purpose are guidelines. guidelines, guidelines to help us flourish, not to hinder our progress or make our lives harder. There is one guideline within the book of Hebrews that seems central to the book, because it's, it's mentioned several times. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, let us consider one, an- one another in order to stir up and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and, some, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And that day is the return of Jesus, or just when our chance is up. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you by the be hardened 
through the deceitfulness of sin. Look at Hebrews 2.1. It says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So when I ask you why you are here right now at Friendship Bible Church, it is so you and I do not drift away. That's why we gather every Sunday. That's why we gather on Wednesday nights. That's why we have youth group and, and men's Bible study. That's why we go golfing. So we're around each other so that we don't let each other drift away. So that you don't let yourself drift away. And I have to admit, I, I had some trouble this, these past couple of weeks um, in the book of Hebrews. Pastor Bill told me after the fact that Hebrews is a hard book. <laughs> And uh, and uh, I don't know why this is just where I was at in my daily studies. And so I thought, all right, God, let's let's take a crack at Hebrews. But the reason why I had trouble was because I was I was coming in it with my own agenda. And and uh, for some of you who may know that, that's called eisegesis. It's trying to read your own thoughts into the passage. And what we need to be doing is exegesis, which is reading the meaning from the text. And then applying it to our lives, not coming in with our own agenda. So after I figured that out, after God thumped me over the head with that, that was enough to, to, to help me out. So. so let's dig into the book of Hebrews. First, who wrote the book of Hebrews? God only knows. Some say it was the Apostle Paul. Some say it was Barnabas. Some say it was Apollo. Some say Priscilla. But hey, no one knows for sure. God only knows. Now that that's out of the way. Secondly, when was it written? Again, it's kind of not sure, but most likely it was about A.D. 64 to 70, so not too far after the death of Jesus, so could have been written by Paul or, or Barnabas. We don't know much about who or when or where it was written, but we do know that the author of Hebrews, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is making a case for the superiority of Jesus Christ and his better covenant with believers. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, saying that Christ is the perfect sacrifice, because for years past they had, they had duties at the temple to offer animals and, and, and spices to, to cover the sins that they had committed. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. A true high priest, emphasizing the role of Jesus as the mediator between God and humanity, the one who brings forgiveness once and for all. So my job right now, the main point, the title of this, is Jesus is better. And at the end of this, I want to have it drilled in your head that Jesus is better. Because that's what the book, the author of Hebrews is trying to say to the Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. He didn't want them to fall back into the old ways of sacrificing things at the temple. The author wanted to let them know that Jesus is better. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by who? The prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his, say the next word, son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. We know that in times past, one of the ways God has spoken to our ancient Hebrew brothers and sisters was directly through the prophets. People know, people we know, like Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who would then communicate God's word to people. But now, the author is telling us, that God has spoken directly to us through who? Jesus, through his son. This is not another progression of his speaking to us, but this is God's ultimate revelation of himself in his son. Verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. If it is true that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation of himself to people, then any so-called understanding of God that is inconsistent with all that we know about Jesus is incomplete or in error. Let's look at the last part of verse 3. It says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now when I was reading that, I found that peculiar, that the Holy Spirit compelled the author to write that little bit of information about Jesus sitting down after purging our sins. And I like what Dwight Pentecost had to say about this. He said, of all the furniture in the temple, one item that was not present was a chair or a couch on which the priest could sit. This was because their work of offering sacrifice for sin was never finished. In contrast, because the sacrifice Christ offered was perfect and complete. When his work was finished, he sat down at the right hand of God. Not only does this vividly show us that his work is complete, it also shows that when his sacrifice is applied to our sins, that payment is complete and perfect. We cannot add to it. We cannot approve on it, improve on it, and we cannot lose it. Praise God, right? Let's move on. Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. Then in verse 4 it says, Having become so much, what's the next word? Better than the angels. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent, excellent name than they. Alright, let's continue reading. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In verse 5, that first part, is, that first quote is quoting Psalm 2-7. That's declaring Jesus as the Son of God. In the second part, 5b, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, is quoting 2 Samuel 7-14, describing Jesus as David's greater son. Verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. 
Very straightforward, quoting Deuteronomy 32.43, Jesus will be worshipped by the angels. Go on to verse 7. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and and his ministers a flame of fire? That is a quote directly from Psalm 104.4, likening the purpose and ministry of angels to a single flame of fire, which is temporary and just for a period which is completely different than the eternal ministry of the Son, Jesus, described in the following verses. Verse 8 and 9, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Quoting Psalm 45, 6, and 7, proclaiming Jesus is God with an eternal throne. Verse 10 and 10 through 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Quoting Psalm 102, 25 and 27, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. And Jesus isn't going anywhere, folks. His years will not fail. He is eternal. I like the quote, um, I don't know who said it, but it's, the Bible has been to every single one of its uh, its uh, doubters' funeral. Every single one. No matter what, the Bible has always been around. Darwin, yeah, he's got nothing on the Bible. Finally, the last quote, verse 13 through 14, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Quoting Psalm 110.1, telling us that the work of Jesus is complete, and he has taken his spot once again with the Father, until the second coming where all the enemies of Jesus will will bow at the feet of his throne. Which brings us to the end of chapter 1. Concluding, that angels are ministering spirits. Angels minister under the administration of Jesus. They're not greater than him. The author clearly demonstrates that the one who has come as son and revealer is superior to the angels. Two questions, church. Number one, is Jesus better than the angels? Is Jesus better than the angels? Yes. Number two, should his revelation take precedence over any and all revelation given through the angels? Yes. Number three, are you ready to go home yet? Nine. Just kidding. We're only halfway there. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers to cement in their heart that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. No promise will be forgotten, and no prophecy will will remain unfulfilled. 
There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is one God who initiated in the Old Testament many, many things that have been fulfilled in the New Testament or will be fulfilled in the future. Does God keep his promises, church? Yes, amen. He keeps his promises. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we say the next two words with me, drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The author is now applying what we have learned in chapter 1. Take heed, lest we drift away. This word drifting communicates a casual, perhaps even thoughtless neglect, like a ship that has not been tied down and is now slowly drifting off to sea without its captain. I picture, you ever see the videos of of uh, the people who forget to hitch their trailer and they're driving down the highway and all of a sudden they see a, a trailer drive past them without a truck. That's that's what I picture. <laughs> you got to make sure you're hitched. You got to be in church. Make sure you're not drifting away. Therefore, give the more earnest heed. Or perhaps we could translate that and make it a little more modern. Wake up or pay attention. This word in the Greek, prosecho, was actually commonly used to describe bringing a ship to land. The Apostle Paul had a similar message to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let, let her who thinks she t- stands take heed lest she falls. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, amen, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. And guess guess what, ladies, ladies and gentlemen? That way of escape is right here by the assembling of ourselves together and the proclamation of truth and good teaching. We protect ourselves from drifting. That's how we protect ourselves. But let's get back to our passage of Scripture. Verse 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Folks, if there were consequences to not obeying the law, the Ten Commandments, which was mediated to us from God through angels to Moses, how much more appropriate is it that there are consequences for not obeying the Lord Jesus? The issue here is not our accepting salvation. In verse 3 it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The Jewish believers, I feel like that pig in that progressive commercial of the windows, we yeah. Anyways, this is this isn't talking about 
salvation, but rather accepting the responsibilities of salvation, of commitment to living a holy life dedicated to Christ, to sanctification. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Which just means that it was God's will to give some signs to the people by the working of miracles and wonders performed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Which we don't see miracles being performed like that today. Verses 5 through 9. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. What is the writer trying to, trying to tell us? Why are they quoting Psalm 8? That verse 6 through 8 is a psalm, er, yeah, it's, it's a quote from Psalm 8, which is just the psalmist's interpretation of Genesis 1.26. You see, in Genesis 1.26, God is stating the purpose for mankind. Let me read it to you. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God's purpose for the creation of man is the responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth and bringing all created things under his authority as God's administrator. Which doesn't make much sense if we evolve from monkeys, does it? In fact, this idea flies in the face of, all mo- of our modern-day philosophies that, that propose that we are a blight on the face of the earth, that we, as human beings, are a disease, and everything on it would be better off without us. I must admit, as humans, we're, in my opinion, we're not doing a very good job of exercising dominion over the earth. In fact, we are doing quite a horrible job of it. But we should be careful of movements that look harmless on the surface, but clearly contradict the word of God. What the writer of Hebrews affirms in verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Although God's original purpose has not been terminated, it has not yet been realized. We haven't brought everything under subjection. But then in verse 9, the author goes on to point out that Jesus took the position of man, a little lower than the angels, so that he might be crowned with glory and honor. The glory and honor referred to in verse 7, which was talking about us, which would be the fulfillment of God's original purpose to subject all things under man. Folks, you and I could not and cannot 
do what God requires of us. We're sinful people. But Jesus did. Jesus came into the world to be a better man, perfect, in fact, to fulfill God's purpose for mankind. The, remi- the remainder of the chapter will explain to you why it is so important that Jesus became a man. Verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Praise God. The penalty for our disobedience to God is spiritual death, separation of our soul from God. So Jesus is a better man to be our substitute, to taste death for all of us. Verses 10 through 13, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you again. I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Christ was not content to be crowned alone with glory and honor. He desires to bring many sons to share his glory with him. And those who will share the glory with him will share it as sons and daughters. Not like groupies who surround a celebrity and then usually are shunned by those that they admire, but as family. Jesus is, be- is a better man to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Verses 14 and 15, And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This word destroy does not mean annihilate, but rather to render inoperative. It's foreshadowing Jesus, or yeah, Jesus binding Satan for the millennial reign. Jesus had to partake of flesh and blood. That is, he took himself a true and complete humanity so that on man's behalf, He might destroy him who had the power of death, Satan, the being through whom man experienced spiritual death at the beginning, the the serpent in the garden. It is not a coincidence that Satan is a fallen angel. Remember talking about angels earlier? Jesus is greater than the angels. Leading to to my point that Jesus is a better man to destroy the devil and deliver those in bondage of fear. Verse 16 through 18, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. 
One man put it, how would you feel if you had a personal representative in the White House? So someone who in response to a simple phone call would immediately bring your every problem or concern to the intention of the president. I know some of you in here would really like that. But if you're a Christian, you have that person. In fact, a better person. Jesus is our perfect high priest before the Father. He is merciful and he understands the miseries of those he represents because he made himself a man. He is able to stand before God and separate us from our sins and help those who are tested because he was a man that suffered the same things we suffer. We can trust him. So here's the point. If you've ever heard Pastor Phil's preaching, he does this. And you know what? I like it, so I'm stealing it. So on the count of three, we're all going to shout, so what? So what? Ready? One, two, three. So what? Now let's apply it to our lives. In summary, because of what Jesus did during his time as a man, a better man, he has done what no angel could possibly do. He is superior to the angels in his person, and he is better in his work. The obvious conclusion is that revelation from such a better person must take precedence over any revelation given from an inferior person. Jesus didn't destroy the law, though. He fulfilled it. As great as was the revelation given through angels at Mount Sinai, far greater is the revelation given through the Son of God. And just as Israel was held responsible for the revelation given through angels, so we are held responsible for the better revelation God has given in the better man, Jesus. Take heed lest you fall away, folks. Jesus is better. I just wanted to point out, look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Is that trying to tell us that Jesus wasn't perfect? He had to suffer to become made perfect? No. Jesus is perfect. The, the, what this passage is saying is like Hannibal when he puts a cigar in his mouth. He says, I love it when a plan comes together. That's perfect. When, when a plan has come to, to completion, it is made perfect. So it's the completion of a perfect plan. So I want to I end by telling you something that I don't really tell a lot of people. Well, I don't tell a lot of people. Believe it or not, I have not always been this good looking. But seriously, seriously, people in middle school and high school used to call me ogre. There was a time in my life when I was five foot seven and pudgy. I had size 13 feet and I was clumsy and, you know, you get made fun of at that age. And if I had believed what they had said I'd be living under a bridge right now, right? Um, 
Folks, what Jesus has to say in his Bible is better than what your classmates or or your coworkers have to say about you. And I believe what Jesus says about me, that I am family. I am, in verse 7, crowned. I have been crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is better than what Darwin had to say about growing from a fish to an amoeba, or an amoeba to a fish to a, to a monkey to a human being. No, I, from the beginning of time, I have, been, I have had dominion over the earth. Jesus is better than what the world is trying to tell the young people today. And for Elena, Elena just graduated. Uh, she is now a, a has a bachelor and a bachelor's degree. And uh, we were reading these books, and what they were trying to teach her is uh, this body dysphoria. Like you have to you have to let your kids decide what gender they are. Don't believe. Any of that. What Jesus has to say in this Bible is better. Male and female, he made them. He has a plan. Now our bodies may be ravaged by the fall of man, by sin, by death. But God's purpose and plan for us is still the same. Jesus' plan for us is better. You cannot trust anyone else more than Jesus. Because Jesus is better. Have I convinced you guys of that today? Good, let's pray. Dear Lord, again, thank you so much for every breath that we breathe, this life that we live, and the purpose that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us dominion over the earth so that we can enjoy things like bacon and we can, and, and that we can live life and have a purpose. And Lord, I love what you said in Philippians 2, 9, 11. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That is, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, if anyone in here has not yet bowed their knee to Jesus, I pray that they do so now. That they realize that Jesus' plan for you is better. That him dying on the cross, becoming a man and dying for my sins, is the best way. Lord, I pray that, that the Christians in here today, that you, would, that you would make us what we are not, teach us what we do not know, Lord, thank you for today. Protect us as we go our separate ways. And Lord, all this is for your glory and honor. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.